just occasionally in history there is a, an iconic tragedy, a tragedy which was remembered forever as a turning point. One uh, recent such moment was uh, September the 11th, 2001. Everyone remembers where they were on that day, I think. As a family, we had been enjoying a summer without the television and at half past three, Judy came home from uh, uh, the school run and told me that people were talking at the school gate about a plane crashing into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Centre. So the television was immediately fetched from its place in the loft I discovered that you can ring up for licensing, television licensing and get your licence reinstalled immediately and we watched with awe and horror as uh, the events of that afternoon unfolded. And that night we called uh, a prayer meeting for those who could get there and uh, from that day people everywhere began to speak of September the 11th as the day that changed the world. What was God saying? Uh, following Sunday, actually, I took us to an event uh, uh, in history which I am still convinced is one of the most important parallel events in history. It was uh, the 24th of August, 410 AD, when Alaric the Visigoth entered Rome and sacked it. Alaric wasn't there for long and he didn't conquer the Roman Empire, but that temporary incursion immediately in the 5th century, became iconic because in the 5th century, Rome was called the eternal city. Many people believed that the empire was eternal, the last great phase of history that was going to bring civilization to the whole world forever. It sent the most extraordinary shock through that empire when it was learned that uh, primitive, brutish Visigoths could simply walk into Rome, actually it seems through an open gate. From that moment the Roman Empire actually lost confidence and began to recede. It was in that very year, actually, 410 AD, when the Romans finally decided not to garrison Britain. Britain was left to fend for itself. I don't think everyone noticed actually this week the true significance of uh, George Bush's State of the Union address. He spoke of his determination to reduce America's uh, addiction to oil, specifically its dependence on Middle Eastern oil. That was celebrated by uh, green activists, but not everyone noticed that the primary reason for that was that the American strategists uh, seem to have finally decided they can't control the Middle East. Perhaps after September the 11th, actually, America is drawing in its horns after a show of power. The years that uh, followed the sacking of Rome are important. Perhaps they presage uh, today's world. They were marked by tribalism, fragmentation of Europe and the Mediterranean, and I suspect today we are moving into a period of turmoil when there will be no single dominant power, not even the balance of two superpowers. 
for a generation at least I suspect, probably for the rest of yours and my lifetime, we will live with the disturbing reality of Middle Eastern tensions, of rising Chinese power, of competing nationalisms and America and Europe just being unable to control it. But you see, the deeper question we need to ask is what is God saying to us at this moment? What was God saying as Rome was sacked, as those twin towers fell? And it has to be said, on both occasions people were very quick to comment. The pagans of the Roman Empire in the 5th century proclaimed that the sacking of Rome revealed the weakness of that Christian God. Only about a hundred years before, Emperor Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And now they said, look at the trouble it's brought on us. And similarly today, actually, there is massive concern about uh, uh, Christianity's role in our present troubles. Isn't Christianity, people are saying, the, the uh, religion of modern empire, isn't it Christianity which has brought this trouble on us? George Bush's talk of a crusade in the immediate aftermath of September the 11th only heightened those anxieties. Of course, Christians are, uh, you won't be surprised, have counted in, uh, uh, in the, the 5th century the Christians said, no, the problem was that, that Rome wasn't Christianised enough. They began to talk of finally purging the pagans from the, the heart of the Roman Empire and that would make it strong again. Not surprisingly, in the 21st century, some Christians have responded by saying that the, this was a, a judgement on the, the September the 11th was a judgement on Americans, America's toleration of homosexuality. There needs to be a purge in American society to fully Christianise it. And then it will be okay. But actually the, the most important reason in my mind why I think that uh, 410 AD is so important for us to understand is because that moment stimulated one of the most towering theologians of Christian history to write his greatest book. In that year a man called Aurelius Augustine was bishop on the edge of the empire in North Africa a North African town called Hippo. And when Augustine of Hippo heard of the sack of Rome, he was devastated, just as we were on the 11th of September. But he took up his pen and he began to write a great work called The City of God. And Augustine argued that neither the pagans who wanted to rout Christianity nor the Christians who wanted to try to fully Christianise Rome were right at all. Augustine argued that we have to realise something very important about this world. There is no city, no empire on earth which can be truly called Christian. The history of Rome, he said, is not the great story of Christian triumph. It is a sordid story of power and intrigue and injustice and sometimes corruption even of Christians. That is the history of every empire, from Rome to the British Empire to America today. Augustine 
called that, um, uh, that, that, that power-based empire the city of man. But alongside the city of man, he said, is a faithful community of people who are devoted to God and to Christ. This, he said, is the city of God. For now, the city of God and the city of man are are intermingled, but their final ends will be entirely different, he says. The city of man, which looks so strong today, he said, will be utterly destroyed. And the city of God, he said, which today looks so weak and fragmented and scattered, will actually endure forever until Christ finally comes again and establishes the full city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, which lasts forever. And said Augustine, God throughout history is constantly sending warnings that the city of man will not stand. That, he said, is what God was doing on the 24th of August, 410 AD. The Roman Empire, he said, is is absolutely full of arrogant people who think that this empire is powerful of itself and God must bring down such arrogance he said surely that was what God was doing on the 11th of September 2001 all nations all empires said Augustine are under the judgment of God Only one city will stand. While these people bring that in, I'm going to stop because you'll never keep your concentration. (laughs) Said Augustine, no empire stands forever. No empire can think that it is immune from God's judgment. God needs to demonstrate that again and again down through history. And he began that great process in Egypt. That's what we have been learning in the book of Exodus uh, last week in particular and now coming to uh, its culmination this week. God will not allow any empire which thinks it stands on its own to last. Pharaoh hardened his heart, we uh, learned, till finally God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God sent in Exodus 5 to 10, sign after terrible sign, that stands actually in history as a terrible warning of God's judgment. Chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. 
Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. After 9-11, we, we at least to some measure can sense what those Egyptians felt. Not just the terrible loss of life, though that was terrible, but the terrible shock to a great culture that at a whim, God could strike at its heart. We must learn the lessons that Exodus teaches us. The first, uh, first lesson is... Simple. No one is automatically immune. No one is automatically immune. The story makes it plain that this plague on the firstborn will not uh, affect Israel. In fact, 11 verse 7, they will be perfectly at peace. Uh, among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But that immunity is not automatic based just on their, their, their nationality as Israelites. Actually, each family, as we're going to see in a moment, has to kill a lamb, has to roast it, has to eat it, has to, has to smear its blood on the doorsteps and lintels as a sign of their obedience. Only when God sees that sign says Moses, will, uh, will he pass over that house? Verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I, God, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's so important for us to see. There is no one in the whole world, in the whole of history, who is automatically immune from God's judgment. That is what we are supposed to realise as we witness tragedies. Jesus was very clear about it. Uh, in his day, a tower fell, killing just 18 people. He uh, mentions this in Luke's chap Luke chapter 13. Those 18, he says, who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Were the people who died in the Twin Towers uniquely sinful? Is America perhaps uniquely under God's judgment? Was Egypt perhaps in Moses' day uniquely deserving of God's terrible judgment? Actually, the Bible says no. God says, unless you Israelites do as I say in Egypt, you too will lose your firstborn sons. And we live in such an arrogant culture, don't we? A culture that believes that technology and money will somehow make us invulnerable. Our icons of technology and money can be brought down by a few men armed only with knives. 
God will not allow us to think we are immune. Because each one of us will have to face him one day. Stripped of all protection. With all our arrogant pretensions exposed before his searing gaze. We must hear his voice. If Egypt can be struck down, if Rome can be sacked, if the Twin Towers can fall, then so can we. Unless you repent, says Jesus, you too will perish. No one is automatically immune. But then this uh, final plague teaches us something else that's very, very important. A sacrifice can save us. That lamb that we mentioned already was vital in saving each Israelite household. It must be chosen uh, so, so that it is just sufficient to feed every member of the household. No more, no less. See chapter 12 verse 4? Uh, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Just enough. No, no, not too much, not too little. That lamb, as it is sacrificed, must be perfect. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats, he says. And um, as we've already said, the blood of that lamb must be smeared on the doorposts and the lintels of the door, verse 7. When they are to take, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Actually, no real explanation is given here of why these lambs had to be killed and eaten in this way. But there is an obvious implication with the, which the Israelites cannot have missed. In every household, in the whole of that land, either a lamb died for a family or the firstborn son of the family died. The lamb died instead of the firstborn son. It's only as the story of the Bible unfolds more fully that we realise what that is pointing to. Finally, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die instead of us, to take a judgement which should have been ours onto himself, like, like, like those lambs, you see. He was perfect. He had no sin. His death on the cross was a sacrificial death for us. Just enough for his people. And no more. He paid for every one of our transgressions. 
when God came in, in judgment on Egypt, he passed over only those households which had sacrificed the lamb and smeared its blood on the doorpost. When God finally judges us, you and me, he will pass over only those of us who have chosen to live behind the sacrifice of Christ as obedient members of the household which entrusts its life to the death of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus. My conviction, as I've been saying over the, over the last few weeks, that, it, that God is making us increasingly ready to hear that message. He's, he's giving us signs. He's giving us warnings. He is stripping away, as a culture, all our arrogant pretensions. Great armies can't protect us. He can bog them down in a foreign land at will. A great police force cannot protect us. He can make them so scared that they'll shoot an unarmed man on a train. All the power of medicine cannot protect us. He can unleash a pandemic which kills millions of people before a vaccine is produced. Listen up, says God. You are defenceless before me. And if you belong to the city of man, you are heading for judgment. People must see, though, what makes us immune from that judgment. what makes us belong to the city of God. It is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, in which God himself says, I will take that punishment on myself. Those ancient lambs were only a little picture of that. We have the reality God made flesh dying on a cross for us. God has done that for us. Well then, as the Apostle Paul himself says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am convinced, he goes on, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, as the Israelites walked away from Egypt with every firstborn son skipping at his father's side, they knew it was true. 
Only the Lamb of God can protect us. One last thing we need to learn. We must remember Verse 14 of chapter 12. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. They were to remember, he says, firstly by eating unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. Originally, the Israelites had to flee quickly and because they had to flee, they didn't have time to uh, let the bread rise to, uh, to produce normal risen bread. So they ate it unleavened. It's very much a part of their, their, their commemoration ceremony that they were to, to, to eat ready to flee from the city of man to the city of God. More broadly, that uh, the idea of uh, bread without yeast came to symbolise uh, life without sin. A life committed to obedience to God. They were to reenact the sacrifice of that lamb when they remembered to reenact the meal and then to explain it to subsequent generations. Verse 26. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spread, spared our homes when he struck the Egyptians. The people bowed and worshipped. This memorial is only for God's people Verse 43 of uh, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It is only for God's people, but right here at the beginning, it is made absolutely plain, anyone but anyone can join God's people. Verse 48 of uh, chapter 12. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. If you're native born but you are not committed to living as one of God's covenant people, you do not belong to this memorial feast, it says. If you are not native born but you are committed to living as one of God's covenant people, then you are warmly invited. Though God's blessing was primarily focused on one nation here, right at the beginning, God makes it plain that his plan is for all nations and all people, whatever their background. They can come, they can join, 
They can belong to the city of God. They can remember. It was to be remembered as if it happened yesterday, verse 8 of chapter 13. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That is for future generations. But ten generations on, it is to be what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt and gave me freedom. It's difficult to miss the connections as we look at how they were supposed to remember with communion for Christians, isn't it? In which bread and wine symbolise the sacrifice of, of Christ. That is how we remember. But it is not the only way to remember. There is something um, very important about constantly being reminded from God's Word the great truths of Scripture. As when the child says to his father, what do these things mean? And he is told what they mean. We must remember. See, I'm worried that Christians forget. I'm worried that that we nominally um, come along to uh, church, say we believe the right things. But we actually really are trusting in the city of man. We don't really, actually, live as those who belong to the city of God. We must remember that our only hope is in the death of Christ. But if we have our hope in him, then we are eternally secure. In 1887, another time of of arrogant hubris when the the, uh, British Empire seemed to be unstoppable, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem entitled Recessional. It expressed some doubts. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headline sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget. Lest we forget. But we forgot. 
as empire fell, other empires rose, we forgot. We forgot the judge of the nations. And so he reminds us again. The city of man will not stand. The city of God will not fall. Remember. Our eternal hope depends on it.